Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Before we get into our text for this morning, it would be helpful to retrace the flow of the chapter up to this point. Everything's revolved around family issues, familial issues. It began with the Pharisees attempting to reduce Jesus' popularity among the crowds. And their strategy was to get him to take a uh, wrong side of history kind of position. A uh, generation before the question of what constituted righteous grounds for divorce had been a hotly debated issue. But by, the, by this time, uh, virtually everyone believed that divorce was acceptable for any reason whatsoever. The whole, if you don't love your wife anymore, just divorce her and get another one view, goes back a long way. And much like today, it was the popular view then, and nobody wanted to be told any different. The Pharisees knew that Jesus had taught contrary to that view, and he hoped to get they hoped to get him labeled as an impractical right-wing extremist who overbound people's consciences. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus feared no man, and he would again take this popular position, unpopular position, so they asked him, is it lawful, in verse 3, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus didn't disappoint. He had, uh, just as he had in the Sermon on the Mount, he denied the existence of a sinless divorce, but he did so in an even more shocking fashion than they expected. Um, Jesus rooted his view in the Genesis 1 and 2 pre-fall created order instead of the more hotly contested passage from Moses' law. And summing it up, Jesus taught that God intended men and women to together reflect the image of God, citing Genesis 1, 27, and that in marriage God joins man and woman together as one, and any attempt to dissolve that union is rebellion against his good design. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder, in Genesis 2:24. So in verse 7, the Pharisees pushed back against Jesus by misquoting Moses, saying, Why then did Jesus, why then did Moses command us to give a bill of divorce? Jesus was having none of their bad hermeneutics, so he corrected them and says, Because of your hardness of your heart, Moses permitted. He didn't command it. He permitted it, permitted them to divorce their wives, but again, from the beginning, back to the created order, it wasn't so. Jesus' unheard of position was so shocking that even the disciples were kind of taken aback by it. They took Jesus aside and uh, wanted to make sure they'd heard him rightly. And sure enough, uh, he confirmed whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. We find that in Mark 10, 11, and 12. And they responded then to that in hyperbolic sarcasm, like we saw. Um, everything in the Old Testament presents marriage as the preferred state. The entire culture viewed marry, marrying and having children as an obligation and as a duty, as the way in which uh, they participated in the Abrahamic covenant. How else could they make the seed of Abraham as the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky? The blessed, fruitful life. That was the only kind of life that they could envision having a multi-generational impact of the glory of God. One's children and his children's children would carry on this man's influence long after the man was in the grave. But to emphasize the practical difficulty of Jesus' teaching on divorce, they sarcastically said in verse 10, if the relationship with his wife is like that, if, it, if you can't get out of a marriage, even if you're displeased by her, then it's better not to marry at all. They're like, we should sidestep everything that the Old Testament promises about marriage. All those blessings and the children, it's, it's just not worth it. And they're, they're, they're speaking hyperbolically, sarcastically. But this text goes from shocking to even more shocking when Jesus doesn't disagree. He said to them in verse 11 and 12, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs uh, by from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Jesus actually concedes the point that in this fallen world, some men would have the gift of celibacy, and it was better for them not to marry at all. 
If a man couldn't commit himself to a covenantal marriage in the midst of human sinfulness, either in his wife or the culture around him, if he was unable to, uh, if, as long as he was able to bridle his sexual passions, he was better off staying single and missing out on the blessings of marriage and children than he would be to break the marriage covenant. And Jesus introduced the idea of a man making himself a eunuch, a man committed to lifelong celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that was unheard of revolutionary kind of stuff. That was teaching that completely challenged the accepted Jewish understanding of the covenant. The obvious implication is that those who are brought to faith through discipleship and through evangelism are the spiritual children of the evangelist. That you can carry on your influence when you're in the grave through spiritual offspring, children in the faith. They truly are children of Abraham. That those people are such a man's spiritual legacy, his multi-generational impact for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of heaven. And it's into this context that we get our next pericope in Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying hands on them, he departed from there. We're going to look today at believing parents, at some berating disciples, and then at our benevolent Lord Jesus. Starting here with these believing parents, it says, Then some children were brought to him, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Before we get into the particulars of what's happening here, it's important that we consider Matthew's timestamp. What's the first word of this verse here? Then. That's, in, that's important. When. When is this then? Right after Jesus has told them that some people make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Right after that. We have to remember how revolutionary such a thought would have been at that time. Everyone thought that the kingdom was advanced only through large families, and now Jesus has told them that some people could make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That, that, that wasn't something that they could log in their, in their minds very well. I, you know, that Abrahamic blessing, I will greatly bless you and I'll multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and this, your seed which is on the seed shore and your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. You want to possess the gates of your enemies? Have a bunch of kids. And you're, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. They knew Psalm 127, 3 through 5, that children are a gift of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. From this previous section, someone might wrongly conclude, when Jesus says you could make yourself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom, they could wrongly conclude that having and raging godly children is a lesser calling than the celibate life. If you really want to make an impact for the kingdom, you might reason. I even used the verse that way at one time. If I'm really serious about the kingdom of heaven, I need to forego marriage and just commit myself to the kingdom of God. But right on the heels of that suggestion, she has this story, doesn't it? That uh, this little story is showing us that both callings are heavenly callings that require spiritual gifts. It's clearly placed here to remind us of the kingdom potential of the Christian home. And now what's the event? Some children were brought to him. There's some unnecessary debate going, uh, that goes on about what, what's meant here for children. Uh, the Greek word pidon uh, technically refers to very, very small children. But it's not exclusively used for extremely ch small children throughout the rest of the Bible. Not in Matthew, several examples. Uh, and, and some unhelpfully suggest that these children are older. Uh, that would be reasonable if we didn't have other clues of the age. What, what does it say? These children were brought to him. The idea is being carried. Not instructed to go, but brought. The wording seems to fit better even in our immediate context here that they're very young children, doesn't it? This clue is the only one Matthew offers, and admittedly that alone is far from conclusive, but in Mark 10, 6 it says that Jesus took them up in his arms. Well, if, we're, if we're talking about a big... I mean, if... if if Brian Woody brought David Woody to me, I wouldn't take him up in my arms. That would be kind of weird, right? He's an older kid. We're, we're talking about somebody that he's reaching down to get, right? He's taking them up in his arms, holding them in his lap. 
blessing them and laying hands on it. That's a bit more persuasive. But the clincher is really in Luke, the other parallel passage. They were bringing, it says, even their babies to him. So we're talking about toddlers and smaller, even little babies. Babies that couldn't even walk. Babies that literally had to be carried, that cradled in the arms of Jesus. Uh, that one pretty much clinches it, doesn't it? So it's extremely small children that are being brought to Jesus, even as young as little babies. And who's bringing them? Well, most naturally, one would assume that it's the parents. Matthew doesn't explicitly say so because it would have been so obvious in that culture that it would have gone without saying. And who other than parents, than the parents, would have had these small children during this particular time? Remember where they are. They're in Judea, in the middle of the pilgrimages that are being taken all the way up to Jerusalem for the Passover. People are going to be having their babies with them. All these people are on that pilgrimage. It's parents with their children that are there taking advantage of of being with Jesus. You can't forget the uh, ridiculous amount of traffic that Jesus placed himself right in the middle of while traveling by traveling to Judea at this particular point of the year. In, in 19.2, it says large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So Jesus has put himself back on everyone's radar just before he's going to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. These parents have seen Jesus healing every sick person who was brought to him. The potent, this potential messianic figure who was announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and backing up his claims with miraculous healing powers was there and making himself available to the crowds. So even if the parents might not have needed physical healing anymore, he's healed all the sicknesses, perfectly healthy family. They, neither they nor their children are sick. They still want to see Jesus. They still want to get their children around Jesus. Why? Well, it says why. The purpose is so that he might lay his hands on them, on these little children, and pray. Parents have a natural affection for their own offspring, don't they? Um, as do children for their parents, unless it's destroyed with persistent sin and abuse. One of the greatest loves that you'll ever find is parental and familial love. These are the people that God has placed directly in your life from the earliest stages, aren't they? The, those who either owe their existence to you or those upon whom you place your hope of ongoing influence that outlives your numbered days. There's an affection there that you can't, it can't be replaced with anything else. It's either those upon whom you, de you depend when you were weak and depended when you were weak and helpless. Or it's those into whom you've invested your life and your energy, your time and your assets when they couldn't possibly survive apart from your provision. You're invested there in a way. You're invested in no other life. Natural affliction is a wonderful and a biblical thing. Paul says, Romans 9.3, that I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It is right and good to care about your immediate family in a deep and intimate way. That is right. It's baked into the created order, and there's nothing at all wrong with it. These parents want their children especially to be blessed, so they carry them to Jesus. And we need to be careful not to read too much into this text or too little into it, or too little into it. Uh, these people aren't trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There's nothing in the text suggesting that. They, they certainly aren't trusting in his sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. He's not died on the cross. They have no concept of that, right? Uh, we don't know whether or not that they believed that he was the Messiah. Very few people have even considered that possibility up to this point. It was a big deal when Peter actually acknowledged it, wasn't it? And God, and God Jesus said, um, the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. Everybody else is saying, you're John the Baptist, uh, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets, Jeremiah perhaps. So nothing tells us that they think he's the Messiah. So to read Christian covenantal headship into this text is an overstatement. It just is. It's not there. So what is going on here? Well, the Talmud taught Jewish parents to bring their children to respected rabbis for blessing and prayer. A father would customarily bring his infant child to the synagogue and pray for the child himself, and then he would hand the child to the elders in the synagogue who would each hold it and pray for God's blessing on the young life. They trusted that God would use 
these blessings to set the child on the right path toward righteousness. They wanted him in the synagogue, hearing the teachings in the synagogue, around the people of God as they're discussing the law and, and having their children around that with the prayers of the elders. They believed it had power, that God would honor that. So these blessings were not seen as cute little ceremonies, but as a means of grace for their children. This dedication was seen as a right that God would recognize and honor by answering the prayer. So we can absolutely see that bringing their children, by bringing their children to Jesus to lay hands on them and bless them, it was at least a sign of honor and respect from these parents. They're showing that they see this man who recently upstaged the Pharisees and refuted the generally accepted tradition of the elders concerning divorce. They're seeing him as a trustworthy rabbi at the very least, and that is a big deal. Aligning themselves with Jesus is a step of courage and faith. Undoubtedly, some saw Jesus merely as a great teacher or a great healer. Some likely uh, entertained the idea that he was the promised Messiah. Regardless what they trusted in him for or as, and regardless how much or little faith they had, Jesus' response was the same. He received them all and honored their request. We've got to be careful when you get people, hey, why are they coming in here? I'm not sure what they believe. I'm not sure what they understand. We should celebrate when there are people that are coming around with their children and receive them, shouldn't we? It matters. And Jesus did that. He didn't see their desire as superstitious or silly. He didn't say that the children were too young to understand what they were hearing. No, he received the children. He took them up in his arms. He laid hands on them and conferred blessing upon them and prayed for them. MacArthur said, those who share the mind of Christ share his concern and love for children. No church or Christian movement has prospered spiritually that has disregarded or neglected the care and training of its children. The heart that is warm toward the Lord will inevitably be warm. Toward children. As it was with healings, once one came for healing and Jesus healed them, what happened? Word spread and more people wanted to be healed, didn't they? Well, that seems to be what's happening here, too. Both Mark and Luke use this imperfect tense. They were continuing to bring. So it indicates a continuous process over an extended period of time. So somebody had the idea, I'm going to bring my kid and let Jesus bless my kid. And somebody else, hey, that's a great idea. I want to bless my kid, too. And somebody else, I want him to bless mine. And they're just, oh, tons of crowds that have seen the healing are now, hey, we don't have anybody else that needs to be healed. But we do have kids that we want to be blessed. And there's tons of them that are coming to Jesus, one after another, after another. And Jesus is taking his time, patiently attending to each one. But the disciples, on the other hand, they were less than through with what was going on. Let's turn to these berating disciples in verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. Well, that fits their pattern well, doesn't it? Needy people come to Jesus. Jesus compassionately receives the needy people, and the disciples callously want to send them away. This isn't the first time this has happened. That's how it was with the sick in Matthew 14, 14 through 15. When Jesus went ashore, he saw large crowds of people, and he felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And he had done it all day there. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. And he told Jesus, Send the crowds away, that they may go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus didn't listen. In 16 and 17 of that chapter, he says, But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And what did that lead to? We fed the 5,000 with five loaves and a few small fish, didn't we? So uh, the same with the desperate Syrophoenician woman in the next chapter, Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman from that region came, 15, 22 through 23. She came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But Jesus didn't answer her word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting after us. But what does Jesus end up doing? Heeding her request and doing what she asks. Again, Jesus didn't send her away. This time, though, they don't even ask Jesus to send the parents away that are doing this. Well, probably because he's had a track record of not sending them away, and they actually want them to go. So they took matters into their own hands. They didn't ask Jesus to send them away. They did the rebuking themselves. They gave an unauthorized rebuke. This word here is uh, rebuke. 
a, a command. It means to overcome with a powerful word. It's an authoritative, aggressive response. Right? This isn't a gentle admonition. It can even carry the idea of threatening. And it's in the imperfect tense too, just like the word bringing was uh, in reference to the children. As more and more parents brought their children to Jesus, the disciples continued to try to discourage them with seemingly escalating rebukes. The disciples are over it. They don't want this to be going on anymore. They're done. Why are the disciples reacting like this? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but put yourself in their shoes. They're trying to have a grown-up conversation with Jesus, and people keep bringing in these little kids. Oh, I mean, we're, we're talking about big boy stuff here. And he's bringing little infants that can't even understand what's going on. They're interrupting our time when we can actually be doing something that matters. That's kind of seems to be the heart behind it. What a waste of time. Uh, the disciples are trying to solve the world's problems with Jesus, and people are interrupting them so Jesus can lay hands on little kids. Those kids aren't even going to remember what happened the next day. Additionally, they may have been annoyed that Jesus was being delayed on his journey to Jerusalem. But the biggest problem here is that they've quickly forgotten what Jesus taught not long before in Matthew 18, 1-9. Jesus used children as models for humility. Just in the last chapter. You ever get frustrated how quickly you forget things you think you know? Jesus just, the last chapter, had said to them, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say unto you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever then humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You ever having Bible conversations with people standing around the church and some kid tugs the shirt? Not now. Go away. I think we need to be careful. I think we need to realize that these children have souls that will never die and that they matter and that they do merit our times. Trying to find ways to involve them instead of constantly seeing them as inconveniences and shooing them away. Yet Jesus' disciples, his little ones, they show little humility here at all. They don't show the marks of being kingdom citizens. They are just shooing them away. They have no time for these inconsequential parents or their inconsequential children. I mean, the children won't remember anything, and these parents, who knows what their motives are anyway. They're just entertained by all the miracles, probably just wanting what they can get, but just want rid of them. And it's an inaccurate rebuke. It's not only unauthorized, but it's inaccurate. In Matthew, whenever anybody other than Jesus rebukes, they're wrong. Every time. Peter rebuked Jesus, took him aside, and began to rebuke him. Same word as here. God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. Later, the crowds will rebuke two blind men for, for seeking healing in 2031. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. We've already seen the examples of the disciples wanting to send these people away who needed help. They're always wrong. Here again, we see Jesus' compassionate heart completely lacking in his disciples. Consider how embarrassing it is for these disciples who didn't only rebuke these parents once in a measured tone, but continued to rebuke them over and over again in an escalated way. The rebuke was elevated, animated, and prolonged. We have to be careful and not correct people based off of our opinions and sensibilities. <coughs> Often our hobby horse annoyances are our hot-button issues, but they're not God's. Things that really bother us. And we think we're so right. And man, we go on and on and on about it. And we're totally missing the heart of God so often. I don't know how many times I've had my hot bit issues that I've really cared about and thought people were so wrong about. And I've looked back and the things I was so on about, I was so wrong about. How embarrassing when we harp on and on about something that's in either a complete non-issue or worse still, like these disciples, we're rebuking a behavior that's completely righteous. That's the case here. The, like Martha tattling on Mary for wanting to learn at Jesus' feet. But the heart of these disciples is worse still. They're rebuking these parents 
for loving their children well. That's, that's what's going on. Perhaps these kids were loud and crying. We have some of those sometimes at church here, don't we? <laughs> loud and crying children. You see, modeling. Uh, perhaps the toddlers were misbehaving and running underfoot. We don't know because that's not what matters in this story. What matters most is their need of Jesus. A stern, escalating, threatening rebuke absolutely wasn't necessary. Hey, hey, can I help you get your children under order, under control? Might be good. Hey, I want to help you make this mo mo most beneficial for you. Could be good. It's the heart that's the problem behind this. The disciples had forgotten the most important thing. We're so often out of step with the heart of God when we lean on such unstable foundation of what is annoying us most in that moment. Isn't that usually what you're most on about? The thing that's getting on your nerves. Sola Scriptura is the only safe foundation for a rebuke. And when we rebuke, apart from scriptural authority, our rebuke is unauthorized and almost certainly will be just as inaccurate as theirs was. Let's turn now to benevolent Jesus. But, Jesus said, it's an adversative. Setting him, Jesus is just the opposite. The, the parents are continually bringing the children, the disciples rebuke in a threatening way, an aggressive, assertive way, and continue with their rebuke. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. We've got Jesus set over against the disciples. And his attitude is in, to be directly contrasted with theirs. Mark gives us more insight into Jesus' disposition. It, this is a rebuke and a pretty stern one. Jesus rebukes the disciples. Let the children alone. Mark 10, it tells us Jesus' heart in this. They were bringing the children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was, here's the word, he was indignant. Anybody know what indignant means? He ain't happy. That's how we sat around here, right? He was irritated, annoyed, vexed, angry. He was sorely displeased. This is no gentle rebuke. Could have been said, I, we don't hear the tone. There's no recording for us to listen back to. But he's, he's irritated. He is uh, annoyed. He's vexed. He's indignant. So let the children alone. Could very well be the tone that's used. Not a gentle, let the children alone. No, no, no. It's a corrective tone. It's an assertive tone. There's no indication that he took them aside to spare their pride. He wanted to crush their pride. He wanted to set them right. They were not having the heart of little children, so he was going to humble them. And that's what he does here. They are wrongly rebuking, commanding, trying to overcome these desirous parents with a powerful word, threatening these parents. So Jesus rightly and publicly rebukes them. You ask, how is that benevolent? Because the title here is Benevolent Jesus. Well, it's a kindness, first of all, to these parents whose actions are being condemned by Jesus' followers. When you see someone being wrongly accused of something, you see somebody, especially somebody, I hate it, somebody gossiping about something they think somebody else is wrong about, you want to be benevolent to the person that's not there. Protect them. Speak up for the person and defend their character and defend them. That's what you do. It's benevolent to the person that's not there. Or if somebody's called out for something and they're not wrong, it's sometimes even appropriate to rebuke the rebuker publicly to put them in their place. Sometimes these things should happen. And it's a kindness also to these children whose dignity and worth are being questioned and denied. And lastly, we can forget this. It's a kindness to the disciples. To say a kindness to the disciples to call them out publicly when he's indignant against them? Uh, yeah, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. One of the kindest things you can do for somebody is to help them see when they're wrong. To help them see the error of their ways. And Jesus does that. Not only does he rebuke the disciples, he welcomes the children Jesus didn't think he had better things to do. 
There were often children around Jesus. He paid attention to their games, we see in chapter 11. He knew what they played. He, he, he was mindful of what they were doing. He spoke, he spoke of the children regularly in his teachings. They were often in his lap while he was teaching. Jesus was clearly and genuinely interested in children. And the instruction here is do not hinder the little children from coming to me. Calvin says this. He says, he declares that he wishes to receive children and at length taking them in his arms. Not only he embraces them, but blesses them by laying on his hands from which we infer that his grace is extended even to those who are of that young age. Do you think that little children being with us in worship actually impacts them throughout their lives? If you don't think so, you don't know what you're talking about. It's a big deal to have children around Christian things. It's a big deal. This text should bring us back to mind of Matthew 5, 8. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes on me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung about his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe unto that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. The disciples had just heard this in chapter 18. And here they are threatening parents who are trying to bring the little children who are the object lesson itself. They're wanting to bring these little children to Jesus. And they are intentionally trying to prevent them and hinder them from coming to Christ. Intentionally trying to be stumbling blocks. Man. I know that the children in Matthew 18 refers to believers. Those who become humble like children and therefore evidence their birth into the kingdom of God. But unless something goes terribly wrong, children follow the faith of their fathers. Did you know that? That's why having believing children is a qualification for being an elder. Titus 1.6, I, it says that you have believing children, children who believe. That should be the expected norm and outcome. It should be a rare outlier for the children of faithful, believing parents who are keeping covenant and seeking the means of grace to have wayward children. It should be a rare exception, not the rule. I pray all the time for my kids that, that, that my faith truly becomes their faith as well. It's one of the prayers I pray the most. And that they exceed me in understanding and in faithfulness to their profession. I want them to, to be on the foundation that I, that I laid and then to build on top of it. Like I hope that I've done in honor of my father. That should be the goal. Children can sense when they're welcomed. They love their teachers and pastors when they know that they're loved and taken seriously. And guys, kids pick up far more than you realize from sermons. Far more. And even from spiritual conversations that you hardly know that they're listening to. At very uh, shockingly early ages, they pick stuff up. Levi was wanting to quit on his... Uh, actually, Lindsay suggested that Levi just stop something he was struggling with. Hey, we're just going to lay this aside. I don't think you're ready for this. And Levi's like... No, Mom, that's not how we work at the car house. When we come to something hard, we just plow right on through. That's what we do. He's picked that up. It's part of his DNA to do what he does, to do it with his mind. It's already at eight years old, part of who he is. You pick those things up and they become part of you from very early. They soak it up. As parents, guys, make it a habit of asking your kids what they heard and learned in worship. You'll be surprised. It's interesting they pick up different things based on their personalities. What Madison picks up is going to be different than what Audrey picks up and Ava picks up. And it's based on where they are spiritually and how they're wired. Madison will remember every story that's ever told in about every sermon. She'll memorize the whole thing. She'll even memorize sections of the Bible you wish she hadn't for more details. Uh, you can talk to me another time. But Jesus says... Let the little children come to me. So let them come in private. And let them come in the home. Let them come to Christ in the church. Welcome them. Welcome their little ears. Be glad that they're around. 
Don't say, shoo, go away. Say, yes, come here when you're having those conversations. Set them in your lap. Pray that your faith becomes their faith. And the reason for this instruction is, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. If you read a Presbyterian commentary, this entire text will be uh, used as proof texting for Pato Sprinkler. Guaranteed. Because most of the commentaries that I read are Presbyterian. And that's where they go most of the time. But try as I may, I don't see baptism here. Uh, mainly because I don't see water. I mean, you know, you try in vain. Ain't no water going on in this text. If you see any in this text and you're bringing it to the text, you're not getting it from the text. It's what Preston likes to call isogesis, not exegesis. It's important that we take this verse for what it actually says, not for what we might want it to say. It does not say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these, to the little children. It doesn't say that. Nothing here indicates that the children are already in the kingdom of heaven, or even that the parents are in the kingdom of heaven, because they asked Jesus to pray for their children. We don't even know what they believed, how much they believed. It's an honor, but it's not here. There's virtually no chance that these parents understand who Jesus is or what he'll do on the cross in Jerusalem very soon. It does say that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Big difference in belongs to these and belongs to people like this. R.T. France says this, Children matter in the kingdom of heaven, which can be entered only by those who are like children and where those of the lowest status are the great ones, here, as in 18.2, is a literal child who, who is the focus of the issue. And the, the use of such rather than these indicates that the thought is broader than the literal children who are present in the narrative setting. Those who are to be welcomed and encouraged in Jesus' name include also those who are spiritually in the position of children, the unimportant, the dependent, and the vulnerable. It's people who don't think that they've got it. They don't think that they already have arrived. Those people are ripe for the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And children naturally aren't. They don't think they've got it all figured out. They don't think that they're independent. They think they need protection. They think they need direction. And they're easier to reach during those young years, during what many commentators call the plastic years, the moldable years. It's so much easier to reach a child for Christ than it is an adult. So it's always a miracle when someone's saved. Amen. And that usually happens to little kids. The, the stats bear this out. When did you become a Christian? I asked of tons of evangelicals. 1% by the time they were four years old. 85% of professing Christians between the ages of 4 and 14. 10% from 15 to 30. So that gets us to 96. And the last four, if you're 30 or older. That's the way it works. That's a big survey. And that's how the numbers fall. Of course God can convert anyone he wants at any age. But the, the family is one of the primary bridges of God that he loves to use. It does matter. You, you have brought these children into the world and you've got access to them 24 hours a day during these plastic formative years to instruct them. We dare not waste such an amazing opportunity to pour into these kids, to show them they matter, to teach them to love the God that we love and to know the God that we know. He blesses the children. Jesus does. After laying his hands on them. Jesus did as he was asked and he laid his hands on them. It isn't explicitly stated that he prayed like he'd been asked to do, but of course I think that's implied. They asked that he would lay hands on them and pray. Certainly what he did. The laying on of hands appears as a mark of blessing again and again. In this gospel we've seen it in healings several times. We, we see it used in Acts um, and the epistles for con commissioning someone to special responsibilities and for conveying the gift of the Spirit in Acts as well. It should be seen as a mark of blessing accompanying prayer. So although this text has no direct bearing on the issue of whether young children should be baptized, we have to make sure that our conclusion and practice appropriately welcomes, celebrates, and invites our children to the kingdom of heaven. 
We shouldn't be trying to find reasons not to baptize kids. We've got a profession of faith. We should celebrate it, not try to pick, poke holes in it, welcome them, and then hold them accountable to the commitment that they made in baptism. Quickly. Young. We must assure them that the kingdom belongs to such as them. And that we could never be accused of being people who turns little children away. As a convinced Baptist, it seems to me that Presbyterians overstate the idea of covenant household blessing. But Baptists often grossly understate it. It certainly seems to be a thing. 1 Corinthians 7.14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. They're set apart. There's something about the children of believers that sets them apart for the kingdom. And there's something real about that. Now, I don't think we should give them the sign of church membership, of baptism, the commitment that they're making until they've expressed faith. But that doesn't mean that there's not something about a Christian home that marks our children out as separate. And that God typically saves the children of believers. Guys, take great comfort in that. We can expect God, pray to God, and believe God for the salvation of our children and that He works through that parental trust to save our children, to bring them to saving faith, that our God will be their God. That's a great hope, isn't it? Another survey found that if a child is the first person in the household to become a believer, there's a 3.5% probability that everybody else in the house will be saved. Child gets saved 3.5% of the time. The family gets saved. If the mother is the first to become a Christian, then there's a 17% probability that the rest of the household will follow her. Way more than if a child gets saved. However, when the father's first, there's a 93% probability that everybody else in the household follows him. Those numbers check out. Men, you matter. In the, for the souls of your children, you matter. Your work is big, heavy, weighty. The context of this text seems to be emphasizing the importance of marriage and family in the kingdom of heaven. Sure, there are eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the Christian family will bear children who are of the disposition to receive the gospel from us by the very nature of familial love, trust, and affection. So let the children alone and do not forbid them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Get them in these plastic years. Mold them. It is kingdom work to raise a Christian household. He's balancing what he said about the eunuchs with what he's now saying about the home and the children. There's great kingdom potential in having 24-hour access to moldable hearts and minds. Earlier I said that unless something goes terribly wrong, children will follow the faith of their fathers. Fathers, God forbid that you be the thing that goes terribly wrong. You can be the thing that goes terribly wrong, and most often you are the thing that goes terribly wrong. You be the thing that keeps your children who will with but little effort profess the same faith you profess. But let them see your insincerity, your idolatry, the inconsistency between your profession and your faith and your practice. And you'll see how quickly that that well can be poisoned. And then the last line here, he departed from hence. Only after blessing all the children of all the parents who would come did Jesus leave to tend to other business. His commitment to blessing these families took priority over other duties until this need was filled. I want to spend the rest of my time this morning pleading with you to bring your children to Jesus in a way that's analogous to what we see in this text. If the parents in our text brought their children to a miracle-working rabbi, how much more should we be motivated to bring our children to the God-man? We know who he is, don't we? To the Lamb of God who is the only hope that your child has to have his sins forgiven and his heart of stone be made flesh. Should you not make every effort to see to it that this child who bears a death sentence and an expiration date, your children are dying. My children are dying. 
They are mortal soul. They are mortals. Their life has an, an end date. Then their days are numbered. And we don't know what date that would be. That date could be today or that date could be tomorrow. But they're so young. It doesn't matter. Young people die every day. Do we not want to bring them to the man who is the resurrection and the life, who has conquered death and brought life and immortality through the gospel? We have so much more reason to bring our children than they did by seeing a miracle-working rabbi in the desert. So much more. As a rule, I don't read large quotes and sermons, but this week I was so moved by a section from Robert Louis Dabney that I'm going to break that rule. Wherever human society is, there a parent is. Every man was once a child. Every human existence begins in a parental relationship. We're so accustomed to seeing the child proceeding from the parent that we are incompetent to perceive the solemn nature of that relationship. It's enough for us to know that God, by His mysterious works of creation and providence, does empower human parents for this amazing result, the origination out of nothing of a new being, and that a rational, immortal spirit. How solemn, how high this prerogative. The parent looks upon the tender face which answers to his caress with an infantile smile. He should see beneath that smile an immortal spark which he has kindled, but he can never quench. It must grow for will or for woe. It cannot be arrested. Just now it was not. The parents have mysteriously brought it from darkness and nothing, and apart from trust in Christ, this immortal spark of life will prove to be a curse. Parents... You brought this life that will prove to be a curse if they don't trust in Christ. Yes, the parents have lighted there an everlasting lamp, which must burn. It must burn on when the sun shall have been turned into darkness and the moon into blood, either with the glory of heaven or with a lurid flame of despair. Every parent now transmits to the child he loves, along with the gift of excellence, the deadly disease of sin. How can you, O oh Christian, fail to bring your child to the great physician of souls to be healed of the deadly contagion that you've conveyed to him? These, then, are the two facts which give so unspeakable a solemnity to the parent relation to his children. He's conferred upon them unasked the endowments of an endless responsible existence, and he has also been the instrument, if unwilling, yet the sole instrument of conveying to this new existence the taint of original sin and guilt. Can the human mind conceive a mortal more tender, more dreadful, more urgent, prompting a parent to seek for his beloved souls that he has poisoned, the aid of the great physician? And if this parent professes to have felt his blessed skill in the, the physician's blessed skill in his own soul, to be rejoicing in the divine cure, and yet is callous to the ruin that he has transmitted to his own child, he is a monster with a heart harder than wild beasts. Parents have the forming of the plastic years. When they are molding the child, his character is in the gristle, yielding to the softest pressure. But by the time he has come to the hands of the pastor, the gristle has been hardened into rigid bone, which may be broken by violence, but it cannot be bent. Every way the parent has the advantage over the pastor, so that the latter has a small prospect of re reversing the parent's work when it has been for evil. Guys, you won't. I'll take them to church and the pastor can get them into heaven. No! Your child, your duty, you lift the immortal spark. You transmitted the disease of sin. And it is you who must be the voice of the gospel in their life to maximize the likelihood of them knowing the Savior. You. The education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. It is the one business for which the earth exists. To it, all politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinated. And every parent especially ought to feel every hour of the day that next to making his own calling and election sure, this is the end for which he is kept alive by God. This is his task on the earth. On the right training of the generation now arising turns not only the individual salvation of each member in it, not only the religious hope of the age which is approaching, but the fate of all future generations to a large degree. 
train him up who is now a boy for Christ, and you not only sanctify that soul, but you set on foot the best earthly agencies to redeem the whole broadening stream of human beings who shall proceed from him down to the time when men cease to marry and give in marriage. The instrumentalities of the family are chosen and ordained of God as the most efficient of all means of grace. More truly and efficaciously, a means of saving grace than all of the other ordinances of the church. To family, piety are given the best promises of the gospel under the new as well as the old dispensation. How then should a wise God do otherwise than consecrate the Christian family and ordain that the believing parents shall sanctify the children? Hence, the very foundation of all parental fidelity to children's souls is to be laid in the conscientious, solemn, and healthy adoption of the very duties and promises which God seals in the covenant. See why I wanted to read it off? Oh, it's heavy. I just can't carry it myself. Good news. You don't have to. You don't carry it yourself. You've not done good enough. Not done good enough. Where do I run? I model for my children where I want them to run. I'm a failure and I'm a sinner and I need Christ. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He lived a perfect life to redeem me. And I look there with all my hope and I point my children there consistently, regularly, all the time. And I say, God, I want to do better. God, I, and I, you're going to, for the next two days, after you've heard this sermon, man, you're going to want to do good. And more, more, like, more likely than not, you'll be like the disciples in chapter 18 who forget by the time chapter 19 comes around. You'll have to recommit again and again. You say, God, help me. You know, he does help. And he'll remind you and he'll bring these reminders. And you believe him for your children. You keep believing. You keep recommitting week after week in the context of a church that it is a, I will be a shepherd of you, a shepherd of your home, to bring you back to your covenant promises, to remind you of your covenant duties as a covenant head of a household. And that God will use church government to help you fulfill the duties of family government. That will help us change the civil government all around us. And that the whole world can be Christianized through the spread of the church. Through the spread of the gospel. That we will go and make disciples of all the nations. It starts in families. The church has a role. But the end goal is the evangelization of the whole world. You think Jesus will get it done? I believe him for it. We've got a role in it. What's the key? One, one big key. is Do not... Rebuke these children. Do not turn them away. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this reminder today of our great duties, our solemn duties, but also of your provision and your benefit. That when we bring our children to you, that you do not despise them, but that you do honor our, honor our effort and our faith to bring them before you. And it is your pattern to save the children of believers. We trust you for that. We rejoice in that great hope. We call on you to please, Lord, bless our children and to help us to lead them and to guide them and to model that trust in our Savior that we want them to have. In Jesus' name we pray.